Welcome to the Voices in Health Law podcast, sponsored by the American Bar Association Health Law Section. My name is Felicia Zia. I'm the managing partner of Athene Law in California, and I'm happy to have Xavier Baker from Groom Law today with us to talk a little bit about the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking under Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. Xavier, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Me too. And thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here. So I'm Xavier Baker. I'm a principal at Groom Law Group in Washington, D.C., and my practice focuses on all aspects of managed care. So that includes things under the Affordable Care Act, federal programs like MA or Medicaid, a federal employee health benefits program, a little bit of TRICARE here and there. And it's a, a lot of fun just helping folks navigate this complex and constantly evolving space. We're here talking about Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act and the, and the newly proposed rules. Is that telling us a little bit about what Section 1557 is? Yeah, so Section 1557 has gotten a lot of ink over the past decade or so that we've been wrestling with the ACA. And what it does is it applies four separate federal non-discrimination laws Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, the Age Discrimination Act of 1975, and then Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And it, it takes those existing civil rights laws and applies them to federal financial health programs and activities that receive federal financial assistance. And in many instances, some, some folks in the healthcare space already had obligations to comply with aspects of these federal civil rights laws. But what 1557 did is it really made sure to apply each of these to the exchanges, so anything under Title I of the ACA, to programs or activities operated by HHS itself. And then again, this, this receipt of federal financial assistance, which is going to be an important thing we'll get to with the proposed rulemaking and how the rules have changed over the years, what is FFA? Uh, you know, federal financial assistance is really you know, money or, or non-monetary subsidies, but not all federal money qualifies. And so that's the hook, that if, if you receive federal financial assistance or are an intended recipient of federal financial assistance, uh, then you're in scope for 1557. And that's been an area of of concern for folks in the industry, because as I think we'll get to, if you're a TPA or if you're a group health plan, uh, plan sponsor, does that mean you're now in scope uh, for this body of law that you, you may previously have not had to pay attention to? And so, and so that's in a nutshell uh, how 1557 at the statutory level works. And then, and then I think we'll get into the regs and, and some of the evolving issues there. Well, there's been a lot of activity on, on the regulations implementing this section of the Affordable Care Act over the last few years. Um, the Obama administration first issued regulations, isn't that right? That's right. At the tail end of the Obama administration, in May of 2016, we had the final rules implementing 1557. And one of the most notable things, and, and I think folks listening to this probably already know, is that one of the things that the rules did was interpret on the basis of sex, you know, discrimination on the basis of sex under Title IX to include sex stereotyping, gender identity, and termination of pregnancy. And as soon as that rule was final, uh, it attracted a challenge uh, because I think one of the other tensions that we're going to see as we talk through 1557 is the dichotomy, the, the split between efforts to protect folks from discrimination, to prohibit non-discrimination, 
and then uh, issues of religious liberty and, and freedom and conscience protections. And it was it was a religious organization, the Franciscan Alliance case, that challenged uh, this interpretation under the Obama administration rule, which subsequently enjoined aspects of that rule. And what aspects were enjoined? So it vacated, eventually it vacated. Uh, first, there was an injunction, then the, then the rule itself got, you know, part of it got vacated. The portion of the rule that was, you know, defining on the basis of sex to include, you know, gender identity and, and termination of pregnancy. That's ultimately the aspect that drew fire. There have been other cases out there that have also taken aim at whether some of the protections for gender identity, including you know, healthcare services provided to transgender persons, uh, whether you know, providers or, or health plans had to cover or, or furnish services for gender transition services and other things. But so it's, the, the battleground has largely focused on the scope of on the basis of sex. And what happened with with the regulations under the Trump administration? So the Trump administration, as with many aspects of, of the you know, change of administrations, the, the, the Trump administration came in and had a, a different philosophy, a different perspective on how 1557 should be interpreted. And so eventually, the Trump administration in, in 2020 revised the, the, 20, the 1557 rules. And among other things, it really narrowed the scope of who a covered entity is. Under the Obama era rules, you know, who's in for covered entity versus you know, not was, was really broad. And potentially, uh, if you were writing, say, if you were, if you were a health plan that provided coverage in the exchanges, and you also happen to write other lines of business for which there was no federal financial assistance, just a standard commercial coverage in, like, say, the large group market. There was, under the Obama rule, you, you could still be in scope for compliance for 1557 for that large group sector of your business, unless you had organized yourself in, in certain ways. The, the, the Trump rule really dialed that back and said, no, 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 we're not going to think about issuance of health insurance coverage as a health program or activity. And so they narrowed the scope of, of covered entity, but they, I mean, and they also completely removed the definition section of the regulations, which had, which had the effect of you know, completely removing this discrimination on the basis of sex interpretation. And what's really interesting is as soon as that rule came out, uh, a couple of days later, the Supreme Court handed down their decision in the Bostock case. And it's it's interesting because in the in the rulemaking that the Trump administration put out there, it almost reads like a legal brief in the preamble. I mean, they're anticipating Bostock. They're anticipating many of the arguments because there had been tons of comments submitted on this on this point, uh, and so they they really are laying out their uh, explanation and, and and legal argument in support of their position. And then a few days later, the Bostock decision comes down, which had held that it's. You know, unlawful to discriminate against an individual in an employment context. So under Title VII, uh, solely on the basis of sex by firing the, the, the individual for, for being homosexual or transgender. And that was important because often Title VII case law is used to interpret the scope of protection under Title IX. And Title VII is not one of the provisions that 1557 incorporates. It really goes after you know, Title IX. And so it created tension. And, and later, just kind of jumping ahead, you know, OCR, uh, HHS OCR, Office of Civil Rights, which is charged with, among other things, uh, enforcement for 1557, issued a, a notice that they were 
uh, revising their interpretation of 1557 to be consistent with Bostock. And then, just because I can't help it, because it's literally just happened, we had a court in, Te- in the Northern District of Texas in the Nice case that just said, no dice, you can't take Bostock and Title VII's interpretation and apply it to 1557 because, you know, the Bostock case only interpreted Title VII. It didn't interpret Title IX. And so it's now like literally a, a week ago today, uh, as it as it happens uh, on the 11th, that's when that case came out and has now called into question, well, gosh, what is the current state of play? Because the, the notification that OCR issued saying that sex discrimination includes you know, sex or, sexual orientation and gender identity, the notification has been uh, invalidated. The scope of relief is, is declaratory relief, but the parties are briefing what the, the order, they're, they're submitting, you know, dueling drafts of what the judgment should be. So we have a better sense of exactly the effect of the case. That's pending. Meanwhile, and, I, and we're eventually going to get there, we have the, the Biden proposed rule, which um, you know, surprises no one, is would codify as in regulation this interpretation that OCR had made back in 2021 to follow the Bostock case. And I'm, you know, all this started with your question, what happened in 2020? And and here I am kind of dumping around, but it, it's it's so fascinating you know, how quickly things move and how interrelated these pieces are. And so the Trump rule scaled things back. Bostock comes out, and then here we are today with a with a ruling that happened last week in in Texas that calls into question the effect of Bostock on the interpretation of 1557. Right, but we have we have proposed rules out there. You mentioned that. When were those released, and you know um, what what did they say here? So the the proposed rule that the Biden administration issued back in August and in comments closed in in early October, and so now we're in the waiting game of, of figuring out when. The rule would be finalized and, and what it will look like. The Biden administration rule is a lot like the Obama administration rule. So the pendulum is swinging back in the direction of, of, the, of the Obama administration. Broad interpretation of what a covered entity is, including protections against discrimination on the basis of sex to, to be construed and to include you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, consistent with Bostock, requested comments from folks on whether there were protections that ought to be considered under 1557 in the wake of the Dobbs ruling, and, and also you know highlighted some of the uh, health equity impacts that the COVID-19 public health emergency really put in stark relief. You know, in the, for folks who, who worked in this space and thought about uh, non-discrimination and health equity issues, you know, it's probably no surprise that working on this for more than 40 years, I mean, back in the mid 80s, HHS had a had a secretary's task force on black and minority health, that the top line finding was that despite all the advances in science and technology and, and how medicine has progressed, blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, and those of uh, Asian Pacific Islander heritage have not benefited fully or equitably from the fruits of science or from those systems responsible for translating and using health sciences technology. That's a direct quote from, from the report. This rule it, you know, picks up on the fact that, that the COVID-19 pandemic, again, laid bare these longstanding challenges and is, is trying to figure out how do you use 1557 and its protections in a way to help advance health equity, help uh, achieve better access, better outcomes. But then you have the tightrope that the federal government must walk, recognizing that when you are attempting to redress longstanding discrimination or other challenges, 
equal protection and trigger and other constitutional protections trigger strict scrutiny by the by the Supreme Court. And last month we had the uh, students for fair admission uh, versus Harvard and the students for fair admission versus UNC cases, which take aim at affirmative action in higher education. And while that's not healthcare, however, the court decides to interpret the uh, ability of the federal government to take into account race or other criteria and you know, engage in affirmative action and, and attempts to redress you know, discrimination, that may have a considerable effect on what federal programs and federal financial assistance and, and recipients of federal financial assistance can do in the healthcare space. But isn't there a distinction between tr- preventing discrimination in federal healthcare programs and admission policies and, and, and the kinds of policies that Harvard had? So I, I'm totally with you on, on prevention, but there's there's another angle to this, which is, you know, in, in health programs and activities, you could have remedial activities to correct longstanding discrimination, which is you know, similar to what Harvard and UNC's approaches to admissions uh, are directed at, right? And so the, the question, I think, on the health side is less about preventing discrimination and more around the what's what is the what limits exist on efforts to take remedial action to, to engage in some sort of affirmative action to assess you know disparities in health equity or outcomes I mean to try and figure out are there limits to the sorts of programs that the federal government itself or recipients of federal funds can undertake uh, to address this versus you know, preventing discrimination on the front end. Right. But is, is that contemplated in the, the proposed rules? So it's not explicitly in the proposed rule, but there was highlighting around, again, the disparate impact on communities of color and socioeconomic folks who, you know, people who are disadvantaged socioeconomically. And I think this kind of ties back into the Biden administration's you know, proposals around health equity generally. Uh, and the HHS and, uh, and CMS frameworks, because a lot of that was focused on looking at you know, particular categories, you know, underserved communities or, or racial or ethnic minorities, religious minorities, uh, gender identity and sexuality, disabled persons, rural health, poverty, inequality, and then and, and language. And what levers or, or how ought the government and, and participants in the healthcare delivery space uh, take into account those circumstances and what actions can be taken to address this. And so I think the rule, while well, not explicitly about remedial activities to correct you know, these, these longstanding challenges, uh, looking ahead uh, as you see challenges around you know, protections afforded for sexual orientation or gender identity and, and drawing religious liberty challenges or some of the other issues that are out there, I think you, you want to be mindful of what sort of limitations or scrutiny you might draw if you're trying to uh, address, you know, social determinants of health in some fashion that may give uh, additional assistance or consideration certain classifications or categories of, of, uh, of persons than others. It's um, it's interesting, more, more directly on 1557, you know, under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, there's a body of case law which notes that you can provide special benefits and special services to persons on the basis of their you know, health status, or under the Age Act, you can provide special benefits or special services to children or the elderly that you don't generally provide to others. And so it's 
it's finding the, the right legal support or the right basis to design these programs and to build something that is compliant with the law and you know, doesn't run the risk of uh, potential invalidation on a strict scrutiny analysis or otherwise. No, I understand that. I only asking because it seems like if CMS were to proceed in that fashion, that they would use their authority under the spending clause of the Medicare and Medicaid, the Medicare and Medicaid acts, rather than looking to base it necessarily in these civil rights laws, including Section 1557. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And there, the government has several different tools in the toolkit that they can they can use to to support the government's direct provision of benefits or, or you know rolling out of programs. But then when you think about if there are health plans that want to make certain investments or, or implement programs and or providers who want to undertake certain activities separate from and who, and who do receive federal, you know, it's like any physician who participates in, in Medicare you know, is in scope for 1557 as a, as a covered entity. If that physician practice wants to do other things that may not be directly, you know, for, you know based on on the Medicare program on Medicaid. Does their receipt of federal funds constrain the ability to, to implement or design a program in a particular way, or are there certain internal reorganizations that may have to happen to sort of insulate from the uh, integration analysis that that that's in the proposed rule of how how far 1557 can reach an entity's operations. That might be required in order to do some of these things, but you know it's it's an interesting question. I mean, and I think as as folks think more about this and, and try and roll things out, we'll see more and a deeper analysis on this front. And now, a word from our sponsors. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible: five star premier sponsor AAA, four star premier sponsors BRG and VMG Health, and three star premier sponsors Pinnacle Health. Now back to the program. So let me ask about one issue that we haven't talked about. Is there anything in this new um, notice of proposed rulemaking that talks about services to to limited English proficient individuals? Yes. So the LEP, there are a couple different access, I'll I'll call them broadly speaking, access types of provisions that are at play here. One is around limited English proficiency individuals and, you know, really a reintroduction of many of the requirements that were in the Obama era rule. And the other is making sure that there's meaningful access to uh, persons who are you know, disabled to make sure that there's a, a appropriate engagement for folks so that they can actually avail themselves of the, of the services. So that might be, you know, auxiliary aids and services uh, in addition to the language assistance services that have to be made available. And were those were those provisions undermined by the Trump era regulation? Uh, I wouldn't say undermined. The Trump era regulation had a had proposed a, as I recall, a, a multi-factor test, uh, and it was a, a bit less formalized than what had existed under the Obama and what would be introduced or reintroduced under the Biden uh, rulemakings. Understood. All right. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion. Is there anything else notable in the new notice proposed rulemaking that we should be looking out for? Uh, well, it's any. That's I mean, gosh, I don't remember how many hundreds of pages it was. Anything else notable? So one change from from prior iterations is that it now interprets Medicare Part B 
as federal financial assistance. Previously, you had A, C, and D, but now we're going to complete the alphabet and B is included as federal financial assistance. It once again recognizes that there is a private right of action to enforce 1557. Previously, the Trump administration rule had declined to take a position as to whether there was a private right of action. And I think the other thing that's kind of interesting is there, you know, there are questions around uh, algorithmic bias and benefit design questions. The other interesting thing I want to highlight in the proposed rulemaking for 1557 is how it picks up on themes that were articulated in the 2023 uh, Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameter Rule. So that's the annual rulemaking for the marketplaces, the exchange coverage. And in that rule, the CMS had addressed longstanding questions around discriminatory benefit design and had articulated examples of what CMS would consider to be uh, per se discriminatory benefit design. So for example, if you were to cover uh, infertility services, but then exclude women over 40 from those services, that's an example of per se discriminatory benefit design because There's no valid clinical rationale to support not providing coverage for those services. In the 1557 analysis or the rulemaking around benefit design questions, it's less specific, but it stops short of calling out examples of per se discriminatory benefit design. But it it picks up on many of the same uh, types of analysis in terms of what, what are the rationales that are used for a health plan to exclude or otherwise limit coverage of certain benefits, items, or services. And the framework then has to look through you know, the, the four acts as they're incorporated. So I mentioned earlier, the Age Act will permit discrimination on the basis of age to, when it's you know, used to support providing special services or benefits to the elderly or special services or benefits to children. And then there are various other exceptions built into the Age Act. You have to think through that level of analysis in terms of the exclusions or other limitations that are put in place on benefit design. And the other thing that's related between 1557 and the Notice of Benefit Payment Parameter Rule is that they both think about algorithmic bias and uh, technology-assisted clinical decision-making and thinking through potential liability for basing clinical judgments on an algorithm that may have bad data. It's, it's been recognized for many years now. I think there was an FTC report or a, a white paper that was published by the FTC probably five, six years ago, recognizing that algorithmic bias in healthcare settings uh, is a challenge because sometimes there is a very narrow subset of data that's fed into the system. And so then, while well, the algorithm itself may check out mathematically, uh, if you have bad input, you're going to have bad output or narrow input, you'll have you know, skewed outputs. And so there's discussion in the 1557 rulemaking around uh, who, wh- whether you're liable for the decision, basing a decision on, on a clinical route algorithm that say you had your TPA run or that, or that you purchased off the shelf. And I think this is fascinating discussion because this, is, this has been a conversation I know that many in the healthcare space have been having for years now. And not just in like the digital health uh, or health technology sectors, but really thinking about utilization management and thinking about efficiencies uh, to think about, you know, where is the where, are the, where are the vulnerabilities? And again, I'll come back to COVID as a perfect illustration of this, uh, where health disparities driven by 
uh, race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status were, were highlighted. And what is the, you know, this, this is part of the problem that the, the overall health equity effort by the administration is trying to solve. But this is something that's putting the industry on notice. But how, what are the tools that we're using? And what are the valid evidentiary support we can use to make better tools? in this space. And so, for example, I know there's a data set that I think it's CDC who's been working on that's supposed to be more representative of the population as a whole. And so if you're going to use an algorithm or or other um, technology-assisted decision-making, you know, consider the, the data sources and think about that because I think 1557 is going to simply heighten the, the level of scrutiny that may be out there on this front. That's fascinating because we think of technology as being sort of a an objective uh, way to implement something, but it really, and you have to look at, at the end of the day on the impact that it may have on benefits. So that 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 is very interesting to hear about. Well, thank you so much, Xavier, for joining us today. Uh, it was wonderful learning a lot more about Section 1557 and the impact on, on health insurance products. Once again, this has been the Voices in Health Law podcast, and this is Felicia Z talking with Xavier Baker of Groom Law. Have a wonderful day.